Good morning. Our second Bible reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. So just a couple of verses. Please follow along as I read. And if you're using the Black uh, Pew Bibles, the passage can be found on page 1196. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a glorious future. Praise be to God. Thank you, Amanda. Well, I'm quite excited about the eat and share lunch later. And if you're one of those coming to my place, you can be assured it won't be instant noodles. There'll be meat and meat and other edible stuff. But for those of you who have not yet signed up, it's not too late. So do speak to Ollie or Yvonne, and we'd love for you to join one of the homes as well. Well, today we're going to reflect on being a love-centered church, and we're going to do a little bit of Bible flicking. So you'll need your Bibles, and we'll think on Revelation chapter 7, and also we'll be looking at 1 John as well. So keep your Bibles ready. But let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll help us see the wonder and the glory and the sacrifice of your love for us and how that is to shape us individually and also as a church. We pray, Lord, that as a church we'll grow in this love for you and for each other as we reflect on these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you know this song? Ready? We are one, but we are many. And from all... The lands on earth we come, we'll share a dream, and we'll sing with one voice. I am, you are, we are. Oh, good, good, you know it. I was really, really tempted. I was even practicing this morning to sing that to you, but I would have butchered that song pretty terribly. But, but you know that song, don't you? I am Australian, and it's a wonderful song, a song written in 1987 by the Seekers. Remember them? Some of us are certainly old enough to remember them. 1987, the, the, the decade of Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder. I'm sure many of us are old enough to remember that. But that song, I Am Australian, it's, it's so rousing, so patriotic, isn't it? It's such a wonderful song. We are one, but we are many. And we sing with one voice. In fact, it was only nine years ago that a former Victorian premier, Jeff Kennett, he doesn't live that far from here, he suggested that it should be that song that should become our national anthem as opposed to Advance Australia Fair. And you can understand why, can't you? Because that song, it paints just a beautiful picture of diversity but yet unity. And if you listen to the lyrics of that song, you have the indigenous people, the settlers, the convict, a daughter of a digger, a child of the depression, the bushy, the battler, and the many of all the lands on earth 
singing with one voice, I am Australian. It perhaps makes, makes you proud for being an Australian if you are. But I'd like to ask you, as good, as rousing, as patriotic that song is, is that what we see in Australia? Great diversity, but a wonderful unity. Is that what you see as you observe our world around us, the culture and how people relate? There's certainly diversity, isn't there, in our country? In fact, far more diverse now than it was in the 80s when the song was first written. But how much unity do you see in our country? How much unity do you see? I mean, you look around, there is still racism and sexism and ageism and any other ism under the sun. And you still have Australians who call themselves Australians cheating on Australians, betraying Australians, stealing from Australians, hating Australians, and even killing Australians. I mean, the most recent news from what, in what happened up in Brisbane, the father killing his three children and his wife. They're all Australians. Where's the unity? I mean, apart from sharing the same passport, how much unity do you see? A lovely song, so rousing, so patriotic. How much unity do you see and experience? I mean, it is a wonderful country, don't get me wrong. I'm glad and thankful to God to be an Australian. But now I want you to imagine something else. What that song was longing for and yearning for. You know, that, that vast diversity, but a real solid unity without any racism or sexism, without any betrayals or lies or deceit or dishonesty or hatred or hostility, without any pride or envy or arrogance, but a sea, imagine, a sea of millions upon millions of people from every tribe and nation and tongue, not just the one, united by something that is real. United by love. United by the love of God for them. And united by their love for God and each other. United by a bond that can never ever be broken. A bond that is thicker than blood. Thicker than a passport. A bond that is spiritual and everlasting and eternal. Can you imagine that picture? A sea of millions upon millions, a great multitude. Well, that's what we get here in Revelation chapter 7. And it is real. And when we meet as a church each week like this, gathered around Christ and his word, we are, in a sense, a picture of that picture in Revelation in miniature. A tiny, pale picture, but nonetheless a foretaste of heaven. We are that in miniature, united by the same Father, united by the same Saviour, united by the same Spirit and Gospel, united as one family. That wonderful picture in Revelation, it's that in miniature each week even now. And yet we are many, aren't we? There is young and old here, 
the rich and the poor, and then we've got Australians and Africans, Europeans, Americans, those working, those not working, the single, the married. What we have here each week, a pale, a small picture, but nonetheless a foretaste of that picture in Revelation. And that is why we are to be a love-centred church. So that what we have here today, as we meet each week as a church, is indeed a reflection of what it will be then, in the future. We start reflecting that now today. So that what we have here is a genuine reflection of the love of God for us and our love for God and each other here now. It's why it's meant to be the heartbeat of our church. And what we need to understand about this, about why we are to be a love-centred church, we have to think about this, and that is it's not primarily about what we do. We have to remember that it's love-centred church, but it's not primarily about our love for each other. We have to get the order right. It is primarily about God who has loved us first. You see, that's what we see in the, in the book of 1 John. The Apostle John, I'd like you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. The Apostle John, perhaps in the most detailed passages of Scripture, he speaks here about the love of God. And he shows us why we have to get that order right. He makes it extremely clear that love is firstly from God. You see, love is not a human idea or a human invention. It is from God. In fact, he goes as far as to say that it is who God is. So much so that the Apostle John, he would even dare to utter the words, God is love. God himself is love. You can't separate God and love, just like how you can't separate the sun from its rays or water from wetness or fire from heat. And so we see this. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Dear friends, let us love one another. There's the command, but it tells us why. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, which means it is entirely inconsistent for a church to not be loving. It's why we must be a love-centered church. And then we read on. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so the first thing we need to understand about being a love-centered church, that's what we're striving for, that's what we're praying about, that's what we want to be shaped by. The first thing we need to understand is that we are a people loved and cherished by the God of the universe that he will look upon us and set his love upon us, which is just extraordinary. Now, when we hear about love, we have to understand love rightly. We have to understand God's love rightly. Because when we talk about love, we could be thinking about many things. Why is it so special? You hear it in almost every second, second song, every second pop song, you know, Taylor Swift, Love Story. So, only the young ones know that one. Or Stevie Wonders, he's for some of us older ones. I just caught to say... I love you. You know that song, Stevie Wonder? Or the Beatles, 
She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, is that the type of love our church is to be shaped by? What we get from, from the songs? Is that what God's love looks like? Well, what we see here in 1 John is a different kind of love. Not a love where I love you because it makes me feel good. Not a love where I love you so that you can love me back. But one that is self-giving and selfless and sacrificial and serving. And what does that love look like? Is it like the love of a spouse or the love of a parent or the love of your parent? I mean, what's, what, what does the love of a parent look like? If my child is hungry, then love says, I, I feed my child. That's loving. If my child gets sick, then love says, I take my child to the doctor. If my child needs a blood transfusion, then love says, I give my blood as much as you like. That's what love would do. If my child even needs a heart transplant, what would love say? Love would even dare to say, if it is at all possible, take my heart. I mean, that's the love of a parent, isn't it? But is that what God's love is like? Merely like a parent? I mean, if you're a parent, then of course you'll love your child. It just makes sense. Of course you would. But you see, the love of God for the church, the love that is to shape his church, the love of God for you and me is far more radical than the love of a parent because it goes beyond imagining, beyond the lovable to the unlovable. A love such that God would say, I see into your heart and I see the worst in you, but I love you still. I want to change you, but I love you still. In fact, I'll love you to the extent of not only giving you my heart, but I'll even give you my son so that whatever you have already done to shame me, to humiliate me, to hurt me, it is forgiven. So that whatever guilt you have, it is removed. So that however dirty or filthy you feel, it is washed clean. You see, God's love is one where you are loved and cherished and embraced like never before. Such is the love of God for his church. And so that's what we see. Look at verses 9 to 10 now. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God. You see, we have to get the order right. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it is that type of love that must shape our church. There's an old hymn by Frederick Lehman. When he came to understand the, the vastness, the radicalness of the love of God, he was overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed. And, and he wrote this hymn where he penned these words. He, he wrote down, Could we with ink the ocean fill? 
And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You understand? That's a wonderful poem, isn't it? How can you ever write enough about the love of God? A love that is so inexhaustible, uncontainable. And the love of God is such that there will be no one, no husband, no wife, no father, no mother, no friend, no brother, no sister, who can love you like God does. And it is that type of love that must shape our church. And so the first thing we need to understand about love-centered church is that it is about God's love for us. Not our love, but God's love for us. But the second thing we need to understand is that this love of God must overflow from our life to others around us. There's no other way about it. If God loves us so much, it must shape us and overflow from us to those around us. There is, you see, no deep, genuine, sacrificial, God-like love amongst us. If none of that is seen, then we in fact cease to be the church of Christ. It will be a fake. We must love like that. And so I invite you now just to reflect on how you are going at loving, what your life looks like, how loving is it? I want you to reflect. At the moment, does your life display any love for the person sitting next to you? Very easy, isn't it? If you don't even know the name of the person sitting next to you and you've been sitting next to each other for a year, what do you think that says? Does your life display a love outside meeting together for 95 minutes each week. If those you know in church are struggling and are facing difficulties in life and are bearing a heavy burden and they do not even make it into your prayers during the week, what do you think that says? Does your life display a love that in fact changes your lifestyle because you are trying to be godlike and make a sacrifice for others, for someone. If there is no cost to your love at all, whether that is comfort or inconvenience or less sleep or financially, what does that say? Does your life display a love that means that you are gracious? Forbearing in love, never holding grudges, always ready to forgive. Because if you've never shown any forgiveness in any way, never swallowed the pain and forbearing the hurt in love, never tried doing that at all, what does that say? But having said that, let me say how I have seen many of those things in many of you. There are many of you here who are always making sure, putting the extra effort to make those who sit next to you feel welcomed and loved. 
because you love. There are those of you who are prayer warriors, who check in on those who are finding life difficult, who follow up, who visit in hospitals, who go to homes to visit because you love. There are those of you who make countless sacrifices, opening up your home for people to stay in, bringing meals to those in need, even making costly career decisions because you seek to love God. And there are those of you who I know have been deeply, deeply hurt, but yet because of the overflow of the love of God in you, you in your heart forgive because you love. See how beautiful it is when the church is shaped by that love of God? But if you are sitting there this morning and you're feeling, I know the love of God, but I don't really think I'm really that loving at all. If you're feeling that way, it is okay because you can start today. Start loving today. You see, there's no other way about it if we are to be the church of Christ. As those loved by God, we must go on loving one another. In fact, the language in 1 John is so strong here that God's love is not complete, not perfected, until it moves from you and overflows to someone else. And not just those within these walls. We can't be just thinking loving us and each other here, but loving those outside these walls, our neighbours, our colleagues, our friends, the poor, the destitute. Recently, only, only this year, in fact, I heard of two from within our church who decided to sponsor a child through compassion. And I thought, that is so wonderful. It shows that there is a love in you. And I'm sure many of us already do that. But you see, that is the love that is to shape us as a church. And so look at verses 11 to 12 now. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made, do you see that? Complete in us. Isn't that so profound? God's love is perfected, made complete in us when we go on loving. Because you see, each time we love, what is in fact happening? Each time we display the love of God, we demonstrate something of the power and presence of God. And that is the type of church we are to be a love-centered church. It's to be the heartbeat of our church. It is how we can be at the same time so diverse, but yet so deeply united. It is because God binds us together by his love. And so as a church, even now, as a small, tiny foretaste of heaven, and as we live our lives looking forward to heaven together, you can see the picture of Revelation again. It is our future. And I want you now to turn to Revelation 7. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, 
and in front of the Lamb. Isn't that just a, a wonderful, glorious picture? A sea of millions upon millions of Australians and South Africans and Koreans and Japanese and even Americans, Spaniards, Germans, British, more and more and more around the throne of God. So diverse, but yet so deeply united. Now as you imagine that and think about the diversity of what the future will be like, what do you think that vast diversity teaches us about love today? Well, what it teaches us is that it means that all of us will have to always be working hard at loving those who are different. Do you see how vast and diverse that sea of people will be? It means that even now we have to be working hard at loving those who are different, to love even when it is hard and difficult to love. In fact, especially when it is difficult to love. And even as we think about our church, I've been thinking and reflecting, reflecting a lot on this. Even as we think about our own church, we are also different in so many different ways, aren't we? We heard a little from Ollie at the beginning already. Some of us like sports, footy, cricket. Some of us think that's just a waste of talent. Some of us like veggies. Some of us, we need red meat. We're also different in so many different ways. We're different culturally. We're also very different in our personalities. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are shameless extroverts. We're very different. In fact, an exercise we did in our staff team with Michelle and myself earlier this year was we did a personality test just so that we'll be more aware of how we, we are. So we did the Myers-Briggs personality test. Have you heard of that test before? It just works out which of the 16 personalities are you. I ended up being the logistician, which means I'm organised, structured. That's how I am. Michelle is the adventurer. She's the artistic person, the non-traditional person. Ollie, he's the architect, which means he's the overly analytical and critical. That's him. <laughs> so what does that mean? And we're not just different culturally, but different in personalities. Well, what it means is that we have to bear with each other in love because we are so different in that way. I showed Yvonne my personality and I showed her my weaknesses. My weaknesses is that I'm insensitive and judgmental. And I thought, really, me? And I said, is that me? Yeah, that's you. That's, that's you, spot on. But you see what that means? It means that Ollie and Michelle will have to bear with me and have to learn to love me because I'm that different, and I, them, of course, too. You see, the more different we are, the harder we have to work at loving. The more different we are, the harder we have to work at loving. Very easy, even within this church, to only love and care for those who are like us, and to only stick to those who are like us, to, to stay in the same group of age or interests or, or gender or social status. You see, it always requires more effort and more love for a young man to love and care for an elderly woman. But we must. We must. It always requires more effort and more love for, for a family who is so extremely busy with young children to love and care for a younger couple 
who are still dating. But we must. It always requires more effort and more love for an older retired man to love and to care and to disciple a younger man. But we must. It always requires more effort and love for a widow to love and to care and to take interest in a younger woman, a younger mother. But we must. It always requires more effort for an Australian to love an American. A lot of effort to love Americans. No, they're quite easy. <laughs> to love a European, an Asian, and vice versa. But we must. So do you see how that diversity, even now, not just in the future, even now, a picture of revelation stretches our love. It's a school of love. But in doing so, we reflect the love of God. So how do you think we are going as a church in our love? Do you think the way we live, our lifestyle, what we say, how we act, does it bring glory to God or does it bring shame to him? Do we show diversity yet unity united by the love of God? Or do we show diversity yet also diversity because we just stick to our own? Now here's a simple challenge. I, I raised this challenge a, a number of years ago, but here's a simple challenge for all of us to Help us express our love for each other. Three things each week. Simple things, but it will help. The first is this. First five minutes after our service, every single week, not just for the next week or month, every single week, first five minutes, don't speak to your friends. They'll be your friends. Speak to someone new. First five minutes. First thing. The second one is this, make it a habit. Every single week, have a conversation that goes beyond the superficial, the weather, the cricket, the soccer, the footy. Have one deep and meaningful conversation each week where you show genuine care and interest in someone else's life. That's the second one, make it a habit. I've been making this a habit of mine, and, and very often you might, might see me praying with someone in a corner, and I see people praying with someone in a corner. And a question I like to ask after I've built enough trust with that person is, I ask, how is your heart going today? How is your heart going today? So that's the second one. The third one is pray for that person. Very easy, very simple, but it stretches us. It helps us to, to stop being just in our comfort zone. It stretches our love. But it's up to all of us to love in such a way. But as we do so, what are we trying to do? We're trying to be a love-centered church. And we do so remembering what it is that unites us all in the first place. And what is it that unites us? Well, isn't it that picture in Revelation again? Have a look at verse 9 again. That great multitude standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. I mean, doesn't that surprise you? Not a picture of a mighty king with a massive sword. Not a picture of a powerful lion with a thundering roar. But a Lamb. Why? 
It is to remind us all of the love of God for us. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, shed his blood so that we can be united to him and to each other, so that we can indeed be one, but yet many at the same time. In fact, the picture you see in Revelation, I reckon from this picture, there's a better anthem that we can sing. Not just about being Australians, as great as that song is, but one where we'll go on singing for all eternity with unceasing joy that takes our breath away because we'll be part of that great multitude as one people in the presence of the glory and majesty and wonder of God. And what we'll be singing? Verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The vast multitude, so diverse, but yet united by the love of God. That is to be the heartbeat of our church. Shaped by, motivated by, compelled by, and united by the love of God for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how deep your love is for us. A love that goes beyond all expectations. That you would have your son sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that we might be united with you and with each other. And so, Lord, as we live our lives, as we long for that final day when we stand with the great multitude, help us to live likewise, to see that one day we sing, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.